The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. That experience of contact that it's just what it is. It isn't it doesn't require any like concept like oh that's hardness or that's pleasant or that's unpleasant or that's warm or that's this is stupid or no matter how we might label it conceptually it's completely different than the actual experiencing of you know that pressure or whatever it is that we're directly experiencing so the first and foremost Meditation practice, when you sit down, and this is something you can think about. See, there's even a place for thinking and practice. You can think about, like in the first moments of your sit, you've collected yourself, you've stabilized, grounded yourself in your posture. And you can just have a sense, thinking now, I'm about to enter, open, in a different way, different than how the mind is usually operating in the world. I'm entering this world of the unknown, the undefined. Of course, that thinking mind that does define things and thinks about things, it will be quite active. But that's not the intention in the practice. So we want to know that so that no matter how we might think about the practice, when we notice that, we know that that's not the practice. And then it's time to return. And returning can be as simple as dropping into the experience of the body. The simple experience of embodiment, of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, of feeling the body sitting, or more specifically feeling the breath moving in the body, feeling the warmth of the body, feeling the coolness in the body. The simple experience of embodiment is inherently non-conceptual. Now, we can think about embodiment, I can think about having a body, I can think about being cold or being warm or having achy knees, but that's not the experience of embodiment. Those are thoughts about this concept of the body, which is different than the the direct experience of embodiment. So, um, Buddhism the teachings of the Buddha, they really begin and end with what we sometimes call right view or wisdom. And the beginnings of wisdom is this step into the unknown. But the unknown in the most simple way. It's like a a willingness to drop in a moment, in four moments, the willingness to drop the mind's dependency on concept. Like I said, thinking isn't about to stop anytime soon for us for any real length of time. Unless you've really developed deeper states of concentration, mental uh, one-pointedness, and the mind really turning in on itself in a very powerful way, thinking's going to continue. But we can't just let that be. We don't need to be identified with the thinking process. Don't have, don't be for or against the thinking. A lot of people make the mistake in meditation when they hear the initial instructions I'm giving, you know, that it's a, it's really about a non-conceptual knowing. Then they immediately think, well, the thoughts are in the way of that. I gotta stop thinking. We're gonna only stop thinking. We do this all the time. We think about stopping thinking. We think that conceptualizing and thinking is bad, which is more thought. So that's not the path, but it will be our tendency. So we've got to be on the lookout for the mind turning thinking into the bad guy. If only I could get rid of thinking. Instead, think of it in terms of the positive We're creating, cultivating, generating, reinforcing, strengthening this positive value for seeing things in and of themselves. Breathing in, in and of itself, not in terms of anything else, which would be a concept, 
But the experience of breathing in, in and of itself, breathing out, in and of itself, hearing, in and of itself, even thinking in and of itself, like what is a thought independent of the content of that thought? What is it as a present moment phenomena? There is a pink elephant, that's a thought. So what is that thought? Independent of, you know, is there a pink elephant? <laughs> well, why is he talking about pink elephants? Which is just thinking about that thought, there is a pink elephant. But the thought itself, there is a pink elephant. No, just think that thought. It's just that mental activity, isn't it? It's not much of anything, really. So that's knowing a thought in and of itself. Not, the mind not confused by the actual content of the thought. Same thing with sensation. The mind can be aware of sensation without having a thought of being for, liking the sensation, or against it, it's not important, it's not pleasant. Same with sound, same with sight, same with smell and taste. So any aspect of experience can be known in and of itself, not in terms of the world, not in terms of our how we see it as being pleasant or unpleasant, but just as a phenomenon being known. This is the step into right view. Because right view, in a sense, is not having a fixed view about anything, not living with sort of identification with concept. What do I think about what I'm experiencing? So we're entering this sort of phenomenological way of being. It's just, they're just phenomena, being known. Things coming and going, being known. Mental activity, being known, and physical activity. So you can break it down. There are these different things we call mental activity, thoughts, emotions, images, and then we have the five physical senses that are being known. <clears throat> and that's it. So it's a radical simplification and it's a radical step out of the normal mode, which is being identified with our thoughts or interpretations of what's going on. And once you understand that the, the real essence of the Buddha's teaching on awakening and this path of mindfulness, this path of waking up, seeing things as they are, involves a, a powerful shift from a dependency on our concepts and interpretations to a very systematic, ongoing training to learn how to step out of that and being really patient. That's, that's as important as anything, not to give up. Just because the mind is so deeply conditioned to think and be dependent on its thoughts about things and to live in that world having thoughts about things, and then having thoughts about the thoughts we have about things. And it's not that we're cut off even from the things in and of themselves. There is seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thoughts. These objects in and of themselves are here. But through the process of identification, wouldn't even know it. Because we're so identified, so caught in that stream of having thoughts, identified with the thoughts that are arising, those thoughts being the trigger for more thoughts about how it is. And the reason, one of the reasons we stay here so long is we get a sense that it matters. You know, like, I can be here thinking one way and uh, really get all tied up in a knot. You know, I could be thinking in a way that involves a lot of fear or aversion, and it can be really debilitating energetically in the mind and body. And I could be here thinking in another way, and I can, I can generate really exalted, beautiful states of mind. I could be here thinking like, everybody here is a suffering human being doing the best they can. And even though we all make mistakes because of our conditioning, I really care. I really feel this. So I can have all these beautiful kinds of thoughts. And the more I cultivate these thoughts, that we're all doing the best we can, that we're all essentially worthy of love and compassion, 
those thoughts are very uplifting. They're really wonderful. I could think about, you know, how we're all one, that we're all in this soup together. That's a beautiful thought, too. And I can have really despicable thoughts, too, like, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. You're probably judging me right now. Or I don't like any of you guys. You know. So we could be having those thoughts that reinforce the sense of alienation, separateness, uh, evaluation being better than or worse than or the same as. Anything that involves a strongly fixed view that sets us apart. So because our thoughts do there are relatively wholesome and relatively unwholesome thoughts, it makes sense to us on a superficial level that, oh, I just get my thinking together and I'll be pretty good. And it's true. You know, those people or those of us in those moments when our thinking is relatively wholesome, life is pretty good until it's not that way anymore. And because our mind is conditioned, and nobody had did, has done that conditioning, that conditioning just arose conditionally through all the different cultural, genetic, and whatever else influences there are, we don't know what kind of conditioning, what kind of thinking, what kind of cognitive activity is going to happen down the road. And the other thing, even when we have relatively wholesome thinking most of the time, and we have a life that doesn't trigger really unwholesome thinking, like we're not in a war zone, or we're not bumping into really difficult experience. A person in our community, some of you know Shannon, who started, comes on Wednesday night sometimes, and was one of the people who initiated the People of Color group uh, a couple years ago. Her child, uh, right when she was supposed to be born, her daughter died, just right at the nine-month mark. Healthy baby, heartbeat just stopped. There was a memorial service today, maybe some of you were there at it. So, things can change on a dime in our world. People know that. And uh, so even though if our thinking, you know, may be mostly wholesome, a lot of the wholesomeness of our thinking is because the conditions of our life are relatively tame, relatively pleasant. But what happens when things change? What will our thinking be like? Wynn likes to make fun of me. Once in the middle of the night, uh, unbeknownst to us, the police pounded on our front door. It was like two or three in the morning, maybe even later. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just like my mind, which really likes control, uh, I couldn't figure out, like, what the hell was going on. Like, who would be knocking like this? It's got to be something terrible that somebody's pounding. And I think part of it was just the nature of the door and the, and the kind of sound it made. But, uh, and, you know, the more your mind wants an explanation, the harder it is to get one. And it was like that very quick from being asleep to full-blown panic attack. And, uh, I don't quite remember this, but my wife tells me, she's in the room now, that the only thing I could do to sort of get any control whatsoever in this completely out of control situation was to scream at her, don't panic. <laughs> and you're laughing because you probably recognize this in yourself in different ways that, you know, just how crazy that is, how we, the mind, clings to concepts to give it some ground, some security. And when they get thrown, stripped away, when something happens, we become a very frightened beast and we'll basically do anything to protect ourselves psychologically. In the same way that beasts protect themselves physically when they feel threatened, psychologically we do the same thing. This realm of thinking about, thinking about, thinking about, the same thing. When it feels threatened, it goes a little nuts, gets tight we'll lash out, we'll do basically anything it has to to create a sense of ground or security. So we don't want to believe that just practicing thinking better thoughts is any real answer. It's not like it's 
wrong to do, to kind of reflect on what thoughts make us feel better and what kind of thinking doesn't. It's definitely part of the path. It's part of just sort of good caretaking of the mind. But we need this more radical practice that the Buddha pointed to, that he taught, that has resonated with human beings for so many hundreds of years now, where the Buddha basically is saying, as I've said, that we live under the influence of fixed views. These fixed views arise from concepts in the mind. No matter what the fixed view you have, it's inherently toxic, a cause for suffering. There is no view you can be fixed on without immediately setting in motion the causes for stress and suffering in the mind and heart. So then it begs the question, well, how do you go beyond fixed views, fixed opinions, fixed notions? How do we go beyond being identified with our thoughts about this? A mind dependent on concept. Well, we practice. And that's really the basic sitting practice. We're sitting down, you know, whether you do a traditional practice like mindfulness of breathing, so you're using this experience of embodiment, right? The body is here, breathing. There is this physicality of the breathing process here. This, uh, the awareness of the physicality of breathing is not in any way dependent on any thought or image the mind might generate about the breathing process, Right? The mind is able to know breathing as a physical process without any thought or image in the mind. So by training the mind, and it is a training, it is not easy to be mindful of breathing. Ajahn Sumedho, one of these great teachers that has been, this is such a gift for me in my life, and many of you probably who've read his books or heard his talks, uh, Westerner, American, um, who's now retired, and he's still a monk, but he's not teaching as much. But anyway, he uh, once said that mindfulness of breathing is one of the most infuriating practices ever discovered. <laughs> it's because it's effective. Like, it's simple. So, like, we can hear the instruction, well, as you're breathing in, pay attention to that experience, the actual physical experience of breathing in. Maybe you feel it at your nostrils, so you're just feeling the touching as the air goes in. Or maybe you're feeling it down in the belly. Or you can feel the physicality of the breath in any way that's obvious to you. There's no right or wrong way. Just find a way to pay attention to the actual physical experience of breathing in, and then the actual physical experience of breathing out. So that's an easy instruction. I mean, we get that. We know what it's like to feel the air touching the, you know, tip of the nostrils as it goes through, and what it's like to feel it as it goes out. And when we learn how to be wholehearted in knowing the breath coming in and knowing the breath going out, so wholehearted, so interested, so alert and relaxed to the breathing process, everything else has to be put down. So any identification, dependency on thought, is dropped momentarily and then with more training for some period of time. And we get these little moments initially where the mind is free from its dependency, its fixedness on view, on concepts. Views can only arise from concepts. You can't have a view without thinking. The world is an inherently good place, or the world is an inherently bad place, or... I don't trust human beings. I think human beings are basically good. I mean, we, there's so many views. We should invade Syria. We shouldn't invade Syria. You know, the Fed should be demolished. We need the Fed. <laughs> you know, we're all equal. Well, we're not really equal. Some people have more value than other people. I mean, we can have so many views. I'm no good. I'm good. So any view requires some kind of concept or thought or thinking. So when we're just aware of the breath coming in, aware of the breath going out, the mind experiences what it's like to be free of view. There is no fixed view. In that moment, the mind is just simply wholeheartedly aware of the breath coming in or aware of the sound of a bird or the aware of any part of the embodied experience. 
So initially, there's a, a quite often the Buddha points to using the experience of embodiment as a training ground for developing deeper insights. It's not the end, but it's a powerful beginning to use the experience of embodiment, seeing as just seeing. It's more challenging, actually, than using physical sensations to use seeing. But see, there can be seeing without concept. But because we've our concepts are so aligned with seeing objects, that's more challenging. Hearing's a little easier. So a lot of people use hearing as a regular mindfulness anchor. Because it is possible to hear without conceptualizing. Like you could train yourself right now to hear my voice, but just to hear it as sound, the timbre, the pitch, the rhythm, the and not be so concerned about the content and whether it's making sense or not. So we have the physicality as a training ground to learn to drop the mind's identification, its dependency on thought, and to experience some freedom, the freedom of the unknown. right? Because known, things that are known are always known in terms... Because we have an idea of what it is. It's sort of been captured by a concept. You know, I know Jerry. And so, there, like on a psychological existential level, there's a little safety when my mind defines that guy over there. Oh, that's Jerry. There's like, okay, I know where I'm at. It's the same thing like if you, uh, sometimes people when we're traveling or sleeping in a different place and we wake up in the middle of the night, and you kind of, and then, you know, sometimes it takes a few seconds, and then you kind of, oh, it's like the mind recognizes. It doesn't like that. The same thing as I described at night when the police were knocking on the door. It's like my mind was racing to find an explanation, some concept of what this could be. You know, and in not finding something that was reasonable, you know, it panicked. Because psychologically, this conditioned mind, this sort of habit-based mind, it has learned, unfortunately, it has learned to find safety by defining our experience and concepts. I worked back in the 80s, I worked with kids with... uh, well, first in elementary school, and then later in the 90s, uh, kids with behavior problems. And uh, and one of the unfortunate things that you can see um, with some children, probably all of us to some degree, is that in order to have a, some security, we're even willing to have really negative ideas about ourselves and cling to them, be identified with them, because it gives us some ground, even if it's a very unpleasant ground that it gives us. Because I'm a bad kid. I'm always bad. I'm always doing the wrong thing. Nobody likes me. But at least I know who I am. At least I have ground. At least I'm not having to deal with the unknown. So meditation practice, and generally in mindfulness, and cultivating this path of awareness, we're learning to be okay with the unknown the unformed, not forming, not defining our experience in terms of thoughts and ideas, but being in the wildness of the present moment. Things are being known. Sounds are being known. Sights are being known. Sensations are being known. And thoughts are just thoughts. We're not making thoughts any more than what they are. They're just that ephemeral movement of mental energy, like a sort of a fireworks display, you know, a little flash of light and then immediately it's fading. That's really what a thought is. It's just a kind of a flash or projection of light in the mind, of meaning. You know, there's a pink elephant, you know. There isn't a pink elephant. But when the mind isn't clinging to that thought and then proliferating, there's really not much to a thought. What makes thoughts seem so substantial is the mind begins to proliferate. So it's just a thought, and then a thought, you know, that train of associations. And so thoughts seem like they're so substantial, and then not only that, but there's this dance between physicality and thought. 
because we've tied up our sense of security is tied up with our thoughts about things. When I have a thought, I feel either safe or not safe, depending on the particular thought and how the mind's conditioned. And so if I'm feeling safe, then my body reflects that feeling of safety, right? There may be a sense of relaxation in the body. And see, that sense of relaxation is basically reconfirming, oh, that's true for me. That thought is true. It reinforces the dependency or the truthfulness of that thought. And if I think, oh my God, there's global warming. We're not going to have winter. It's going to be 93 degrees on Saturday for the Festival of Giving. And uh, <laughs> it's going to be hot. You know, this is a big event we're having on Saturday for those who don't know. And, uh, you know, and I could, my body can get tight. I, I can think about that in a way that's really scary. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but the new maple they planted a few years ago on the boulevard, it's all brown. You know, we try to keep things watered, but I hope it hasn't died, but it might have died. And that really cuts deep for me. You know, because it opens this door like, oh my God, what are we in for? And then the body gets tight, and it's as if that thought, whatever it is, you know, we're all going to be screwed with global warming or something like that. Then the mind can get really identified and it feels justified because of the physical tightness that's associated with that thought. So this dance between emotion, visceral feelings, and mental content helps to justify the attachment or identification with thought. So to unhook from that, the mindfulness has to be very nimble. So when we're sitting formally in our meditation, and when a thought arises, there has to be a recognition that that's just that thought, that ephemeral display of mental activity. And if there's any sort of reverberation, visceral, energetic feeling associated with that mental content, we know well, that's just a sensation. That's just a visceral feeling. It's just what it is. So we're diffusing the attachment, the, uh, the identification, the clinging through a simple means, which is what we call mindfulness. Mindfulness and wisdom simply recognizes things in and of themselves, not in terms of the world, not in terms of our concepts about things, but just as a phenomena that's being known here in the moment, and that is like this. It's just this. Not more than this, not less than this. Visceral feelings are just visceral feelings. Painful sensations are just painful sensations. Sights are just color, form, shape. Sounds are just timber, percussion. You know, it's just the, the actual that. Everything gets broken down to what it actually is. Because the thing about our thoughts about things is it casts a spell on the mind. Concepts radically simplify the experience of the moment. Like, I could say right now, I'm giving the Wednesday night talk at Common Ground. That's a concept. And it radically simplifies what this is. This moment of seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, thinking, has very little to do with the sentence, I'm at Common Ground giving a talk on Wednesday night. Or, you know, next time you see your partner, you can say, oh, that's my partner. You know, that's when. Well, that thought is not that experience of being there with another living being, which is a very radically unknown experience, being together with another human being. But we simplify things with concepts, it makes us feel safe, and it also imprisons us. And this imprisonment we call dukkha, or stress, or suffering, and the path the Buddha taught is this path of awakening out of the experience of stress or dukkha, suffering. And it's leaving behind this prison that we've grown so accustomed to. Different teachers I've had have these nice images of, you know, being in prison and the door is wide open and we, we feel quite oppressed being in prison, but all we can think to do is rearrange the furniture. So obsessed are we at rearranging the furniture in our cell, we never, it never occurs to us to, to notice that the door is open, like that we can walk out. 
But we have this idea of being like, like, this is our life. Thinking about things, defining things, having ideas about things, is what this is. So one of the things mindfulness reveals, especially when we've gotten a little momentum, is how this world of thinking was never meant to be this existential crutch or world that we inhabit. It was a simple tool developed to support community, right? Language was just a simple tool that obviously over time got more complex. But it wasn't made language and the concepts that can be built upon language was never meant to create happiness or to find uh, an explanation that creates safety. It's only a means for communication and community. The means for freedom, real existential spiritual freedom, is through understanding the way things are. So basically the view has to come into alignment with the way it is which mostly involves the releasing of wrong view. It's not like we got to find the right view. Where is that right view? Because you can conceptualize what the Buddha taught, and you could get really dependent on that view, and you could have all kinds of interesting arguments with other people who have slightly different views about what the Buddha taught. Like, what is the view that the Buddha offered? But that's not the path of awakening. That's called philosophical arguments that are very frustrating and limiting. The way the Buddha taught was this actual practice that involves sitting down because it simplifies our environment, our experience, or walking in a simple way, or living generally in a simple way. If you can, Given your particular karmic situation, you know, you might have four kids who are all under the age of seven. That's not going to lead to a simple life. But to whatever degree we can, with our duties and responsibilities, we cultivate simplicity because it makes it easier to do the training. Essentially, eventually, when the trainings develop, it's less important how simple our life is. But for us beginners, more simple, generally, the easier it is to develop the practice. And then again, the practice is in in formal ways, like when we do our formal sitting, and then informally through the rest of the day, we're using the experience of embodiment to learn how to step outside of the mind's dependency on concept and thinking. And you'll find, if you do this training, that just in a moment, you could be totally wrapped up in in something at work, and then you, and then there'll be a moment of noticing that, moment of mindfulness, which is like some space around the mental obsession, which is a step in the right direction. And then you might just drop into the experience of body and just notice that you're standing, or notice that you're sitting, or notice that you're breathing in, or notice that you're in your cubicle, or whatever it is. You just, just that simple, non-conceptual knowing. This is how it is. This is just being known, here and now. And that has a real flavor of liberation or freedom, because in that moment, the mind is liberated from the concept it was lost in, imprisoned by, a moment before. So this taste of liberation that the Buddha points to is not some far off. I mean, I think the fulfillment of the path may be far off. But really getting a sense of what the path is, the sense of liberation is really not far away. Like, you could be right now caught up in the thought that I don't really get what Mark is talking about. Like, what the heck is he talking about? And then, in a moment, you could just notice, that's just a thought. And immediately, there would be some liberation. Like, I don't have to be the person who's confused. That could be recognized as a thought. And this is the unknown. I don't know whether I'm confused or not. And I'm not dependent on knowing whether I'm a human being who's confused or I'm not a human being who's confused. Because in this moment, there is the choice to experience freedom. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's just a thought being known. And then there's the experience of sitting being known and hearing being known and seeing being known. 
Like, the idea that we're all going to grow old and die, you know, it's kind of a heavy concept, isn't it? But we can, like, like I could, we could all think about that now. We don't know, like, when our number is up. And then in the next moment, we can realize, well, that's just a thought. And we're not saying that we're not going to die, or we are going to die. We're just saying that the thought that we're going to die is just a thought. Being known, here and now. Knowing. It's just knowing. And then there's sensation being known, and sight being known, and sound being known. And get a little breath, a little fresh freshness from that sense of things, this world of things as they are. Thusness or suchness or a little freedom from the mind's dependency on concepts. So this is, I'll give more specific instructions in the weeks ahead, but just an overview of the path. And we have 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear any questions people have or comments from your own practice you'd like to share. You know, about this movement from the imprisonment of the known, our ideas about things, our concepts, our beliefs, our fixed views about things, to those moments when we have dropped that or stepped outside of that, what that was like. And again, any questions you might have. So what comes to mind? Yeah, say your name. Um, my name's Valerie. And um, when you talk about visually letting go of concepts, um, I, I took a drawing class a couple of years ago, and it was called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. So one of the things we had to draw was a stool. And the first thing I drew was kind of like if you were just going to draw a symbol of a stool. That's what I do. And it was a straight line across the top and a straight line across the bottom. And the instructor came around and she said, you know, I noticed that from where you're sitting, what you really see at the bottom of the stool is really more of an oval shape. And so it kind of broke down the concept of what I was seeing into actually shapes. And it kind of was a real shift in perception for me. Yeah. It changed the way I experienced time, you know, and it, it just... It's pretty intense. And that's what I think we love sometimes in painters, you know, that is that there's something in looking at their painting that helps the mind go beyond its fixed notions. Like they saw something that was not conceptual, and they had enough talent to express it. So it's both the scene and the skill. And that's true in so many arts, you know, that that the artist has learned how, they've learned two things. They've learned how to see in another way, not the conventional way, not in a, with the sort of typical fixed views or ways of seeing. And they've learned how to convey that in some way that opens other people up to that kind of freedom. Thanks, Valerie. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Caleb. Um, something that I've noticed my mind tries to do is a certain pattern. Something I started seeing right when I started sitting was um, uh, like neurotically trying to create insight or trying to develop a concept <laughs> of, uh, of what awakening would be like and then trying to like rush into it, you know? Like, okay, in the next couple moments, it's totally going to happen, and it's going to look like this, and going for it, you know. Um, and, you know, that still happens uh, when I sit today, um, but I guess now I, I really just see it as this pattern, I guess, of, like, trying to build something up and then rush into it. Um, so that's that's been really helpful to not follow that. Yeah, and to recognize it is a, not a small thing at all. And this path of imitation is actually, I'm guessing that most of us recognize it in different ways, that we want to be something, so then we imitate it. Like we have a concept of what is it to be a nice spouse. And then we try to sort of fit that idea we have in the mind. Or what is it to be a good citizen? Or what is it to be powerful? Or what is it to be not afraid? 
you know, it's like given that example I gave in my in, the, in that really crazy way, I was trying to be the one who wasn't afraid when I said, you know, don't panic. <laughs> you know, the one in control. That was, and it's, and this is what we pick up mostly in other people. Sometimes when we're lucky, we like Caleb was saying, you, we pick it up in ourselves, like how stressful and neurotic it is to. Um, project an idea, and then try to inhabit it. Because it, it really misunderstand. like, transformation really has to come from understanding what this is. We're just in this world. It's like what we do when we're teenagers, when we're trying to figure out who we are, it's like we try on different identities. You know, I'm going to be the gothic type, or the punk type, or the nerd, or the jock, or the, you know, whatever sort of image, let me, let me try to f- live up to it. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Casey. Everything you're saying makes total sense. One thing that I kind of noticed, though, uh, in other aspects of this path as well, is not so much that there's a contradiction, but as much as it was this discussion, everything we do every day is a rehearsal of concepts, driving to work. You crash if you lost yourself, and that's just a shame. And I mean, you need to really focus and, and rely on the concepts. So we're always rehearsing these things. And at, at the same time, I totally understand how you kind of need to let that go to be able to go forward on the path. But it, it's almost like we're we're fighting these two, these two ways of living fight each other. Right? Yeah, but, but we're not. But the path isn't about eliminating concepts. It's eliminating the wrong view that concepts is the reality. Okay. So it's a transformation of, of allegiance. So we've gotten into this weird place. It's really, you know, the, this Adam and Eve story is actually very useful because. Uh, there's this idea that, you know, there was this essential freedom, right? They're hanging out in the Garden of Eden, naked, lots of good fruit, and uh, having a good time, and not so neurotic. I mean, that's the general flavor of the story, right? And then uh, the, they thought, well, it would be nice to have, like, some knowledge, that sort of personal attainment of knowledge, acquisition of knowledge. But see, that involves a concept, like, there's a me would really like some something here in paradise. It's not enough to be in paradise. I want to own it. I want to know it. And so that this is the place, you know, the apple, eating the apple really represents some kind of greed. See, greed, there's, there's one thing about taking an apple, but the attachment, the desire, craving for it, that comes from a concept of a me who doesn't feel good enough until I get that apple, which I deserve, by the way, or whatever the concept might be. So there's difference between, you know, eating a piece of fruit and the mind constructing this notion of a me who deserves it or wants it, is frustrated for not having it, will get it. And so that's this birth of separation. Separation requires concept. You can't have the experience of alienation or separation without an idea that the mind is identified with. So, actually, we can drive home with this practice. We can do anything in this practice. You can raise kids as a fully enlightened being. You do a lot better at it, I think. We all do a lot better at it. The difference, the only thing we're really getting rid of is the wrong view that this world is this world that we imagine it to be, or we think it to be. It's, it is a, there is something happening here, and our thoughts are useful on a social level, and we don't need to get rid of them. We just need to not be confused by them, and not dependent on them. And you'll find that there are days, like, the more you practice, especially when you uh, are willing to go uh, leave behind some, a lot of social interactions for a while, because obviously in social interactions we're using language a lot, so it's a little harder to uh, not just get drawn back into the habit. 
but like people who live alone, for example, for longer periods of time, you'll see that days and activities, they come and go, and there's just a lot, there can be a lot of freedom. The mind is quite competent in doing what needs to be done, but there's just not a lot of extra weight that the mind has created and maintained through the process of neurotic activity, conceptual activity. We just don't need it. We don't need to have ideas about uh, whether the universe is essentially good or bad or neither. We don't need to have an opinion about that to be a good human being, a kind, skillful human being. There's so many concepts that are we feel like we have to have an opinion about, but we don't, to just keep doing what needs to be done in life. And it's worthwhile experimenting, like just in a sit, you know, when we're breathing in and breathing out, or hearing, or you'll see the, a sense of wholeness and a sense of comprehension. It's like, it's not that the mind doesn't comprehend how it is. There's a way to comprehend how it is without having thoughts about it. There is a non-conceptual knowing. But see, what our mind does, it has it. It's already here, the non-conceptual knowing. But <clears throat> out of habit, where the mind is uh, generating a reflection, a conceptual reflection. And that's what the mind attends to because of its dependency. It, de it feels dependent on the conceptual projection and is therefore forgetful of the non-conceptual reality. And it's that terrible imbalance, the forgetting of the non-conceptual reality and the dependence, attachment to the conceptual reality that throws us out of balance, you know, and uh, leads to very strong feelings of separateness and alienation. And out of that comes greed and aversion and war and, and oppression and all those other things. Time for a couple more comments, questions. What else comes to mind? Yeah, when? Yeah, I, I just, just in this last thing that you said, it, I mean, it seems like in my experience that the mind just will create concepts all the time. Even when, my, even when I'm really quiet, <coughs> the concepts are there, but they don't need to be a problem. So it feels like it's the, it's the mind's business to make concepts. I mean, that's, that's what it does. And, and, and I don't think you're saying anything different. I just want mm -hmm. to make sure that, that I'm hearing you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's the mind. That's what the mind does. And you don't need to make an enemy out of that. It can coexist peacefully and beautifully with this other reality. I guess is what I'm saying, asking. Yeah. So we're just aware that concepts are what they are. It's just a particular activity of the mind re related to perception and memory, where it's in a way labeling things. You know, it's organizing things and to the degree that culturally we organize things in similar ways, then we can talk about it together. And we will understand to some degree our shared experience, experiences. Yeah, so it has that purpose. And like when says, you know, over time these minds have evolved to use language. So it's not like we're being bad, having thoughts about things. It's just what our mind does, like when says. Maybe time for one more comment or question? Yeah. Well, I just, your um, your statement about being in a prison cell and having the door open and not realizing it was with me tonight. So I just retired. Actually, I didn't just retire. I retired about a year and a half ago. But I've been trying to, um, I was in a, a position where people were really reliant on me, came to me for counseling or knowledge or whatever. And they're still doing that, even though I'm not retired. So I keep... Uh, trying to get everybody, you know, independent. But it's like, you know, digging a hole in, in the sand and having a wave come in. The, the minute you clear the way, it fills right back up. And so I kind of resonated with your analogy where I feel like I am in this prison cell and I keep rearranging the chairs, hoping that it'll get organized enough where I can go out the door. But all of a sudden I have this epiphany and I just go out the door. Because the fastest way to have everybody else not reliant on you is to not be there. Yeah, and, and, and actually that's the same thing, like the fastest way to realize this freedom from concept 
is to come into the experience of embodiment. Because when we're completely in the body, in with the breath, in with hearing, in with seeing, just that, there, immediately there's a flavor of liberation. And this is, I'm not just kind of making this up. I mean, just in simple ways. So I've walked back and forth from my house to Common Ground a couple times today, and I try to train myself, like, you know, and it will be just in a few moments, because the mind is forgetful, and we get swept away in our thoughts about things and worries and plans. And But usually, in each trip, you know, it's just uh, seven blocks, you know, there will be several moments where it will be just things in and of themselves. And there will be that unavoidable flavor of liberation, like how simple it actually is. And then the world will sweep back in, the world of my thoughts about what needs to be done and what I need to be concerned about. And, and then that's that prison. When there's an identification with those thoughts, it's imprisoning. But when the mind maintains its understanding that those are just thoughts, it's not imprisoning to know that we have a to-do list. But when it feels personal, then there's a problem. Then we suffer. That's nine, so let's just take a moment, let go of the words. We have time for one or two breaths together. Inspired to take up the practice as best we can in our busy lives. Take advantage of the resources at the center. Take advantage of your own inspiration. Put aside the time every day, even if it's just a short amount of time, to simplify the environment. This is what we mean by the formal meditation. So 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever you have to sit in a comfortable way, in a quiet place, and to, to systematically practice just being aware of the body sitting, just be aware of the breath coming in, and be wholehearted enough that the mind drops its dependency on thinking about this or that, or identifying with the thoughts that are there. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.